Welcome back to week seven, mm-hmm. I think. We are over halfway, I'm more than I realized. Um, this week we're going to be talking about Galatians 4, verses 8 through 31. And I am very pleased to have Abby Hummel teaching with me this week. Hello. Hi, Abby. Abby has been a faithful part of our women's Bible study team for a couple of years now and um, has had her hands all kind of dirty in helping to develop our curriculum for the past two studies. Um, She's helped coordinate small group leaders and has even subbed in for me from time to time. Um, She has wonderful insights into the word, and um, I am happy for you to get to hear her voice because you've seen lots of the evidences of Abby, but now you actually get to hear her voice. Yeah. Um, they don't know it because you're always so content to do the quiet work behind the scenes, which I'm really grateful for, but not tonight. Um, so the very last, as way of a brief introduction, the very last verse of our passage from last week states, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is our adoption into the family of God. Through Christ, we are all sons of God, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. It's no wonder Paul was so alarmed and concerned for the Galatians. They were about to squander this inheritance, just as the younger son from the parable of the prodigal son, by selling their birthright to the false teacher's version of the gospel, which is really no gospel at all, as we learned earlier in the book. It made no sense that anyone who'd been adopted into God's family would want to go back into slavery to the enemy again, which is why Paul is doing everything he possibly can to try and stop them. He started in chapter 1, by reminding them of his own story of redemption and went all the way through um, the first part of chapter 2. He reminded them of their own experience of the Spirit in the beginning of chapter 3. He argued on the basis of history and theology in the middle part of chapter 3 and then on to use everyday examples of a will and a guardian and a tutor. Now finally in chapter 4 we come to his pleading with them on the basis of their personal relationship with Paul and his with them. He's afraid that all of his labor may have been in vain. We see language that That is the soul-pouring-out language. Brothers, I entreat you. My little children, I'm in the anguish of childbirth. Stott says, we have been listening to Paul the Apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the faith, but now we're hearing Paul the man, Paul the pastor, Paul the passionate lover of souls. So we're going to pray really quickly, and then we'll dig right in. Abby, will you pray for us really quick? Oh, I would love to. Oh, Lord, your word tells us that you have searched us and known us that you know when we sit and rise and you discern our thoughts from afar. I pray that as we begin our teaching that you would, um, you know the words on Joy's tongue and my tongue before we have known it all together, but we pray that you would guard us, help us to speak truthfully, help us to teach faithfully to your word. And as we listen, Lord, we pray, we pray that you would cultivate Um, a love for you in our hearts. We pray that your word, as it is taught in this podcast, will call us to love you more. We pray that your word would be precious, um, precious to us, that your thoughts would be precious, that they would draw us close to you. We pray that through the teaching of your word, we would know better how to love and obey you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So this week, Abby and I are trying out a a different format, and um, I think she called it teamwork makes dream work. (laughs) So we actually divided up the passage this week, and I'm going to focus on verses 8 to 20, and then Abby is like a very good trooper, is going to take on verses 21 to 31 and dive into um, Sarah and Hagar for us at the end. (laughs) So 
Starting at verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The way that we live the Christian life is by remembering who and what we are. And we have to keep reminding ourselves. And where do we do that? In his word to us. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. It's written all over the pages of the Bible. In our prayer, when we have the great privilege of communing with the one true God, we experience his goodness. We remind each other as we gather in community that we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Jesus lives in us. Paul is saying to the Galatians, you once were slaves, now you're sons. Why in God's good name would you want to return again to slavery? So what exactly were the Galatians enslaved to before they heard the gospel? We see in verse 8, it tells us they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Many or most of the Galatians were not familiar with the God of the Bible before Paul preached to them the gospel. They worshipped pagan gods and goddesses, and the Galatians had lived the immoral and licentious lifestyle that went along with the worship in these religions. So at first glance, it seems that Paul is warning them not to go back to this kind of idol worship. But then we remember that the whole point of the letter is to warn them against adopting a legalistic, non-gospel form of Christian living and believing we have to stop and think. The false teachers weren't encouraging the Galatians to ignore God's law and go back to their former idol, former idol worship. They were telling them that in order to please God and to be justified in him, they must adopt all of the Old Testament Mosaic law with its rules and regulations and days and seasons and months and years. This is a really strong assertion that Paul is making here. He's saying that it is possible for the religious person who does all the right things and adheres to all the right moral standards and rules to be as lost and enslaved as the pagan in their idol worship. They are both attempts at saving oneself. They just manifest differently. As Paul says, they are both based on the basic principles of the world. That phrase in the Greek, the basic principles, principles of the world is um, in ancient Greek referred to the elements of the material world that make up nature, fire, water, air, and earth. It often referred to the pagan belief that spiritual forces or gods were behind and worked through these elements to control people and their destinies. They were selfish and temperamental beings that required worship and appeasement. So farmers would sacrifice to a weather god. Young, unmarried people would sacrifice to the god or goddess of love or beauty. A woman desiring a baby might sacrifice to the goddess of fertility and so on and so forth. Just another, though pagan, way to try and earn the favor and pleasure of a god. So the basic principles of the world here is that we need to save ourselves. It's the same, both in pagan worship and in the Judaizers' form of worship. Um, the basic principles that we need to save ourselves. As Keller says, whatever it is we worship, we will be enslaved by. It will become our idol. Idol worship is not a normal level of desire for something evil. It's an inordinate desire or an over-desire for something good other than Jesus. A husband or wife, a job, my kid's happiness or safety, my health or fitness, education or success— image or heaven forbid a political party or a politician all of them seemingly good things but with an over desire a desire for them more than Jesus they become an idol so let's play that out 
If I put my greatest hope in my 25-year-old pre-kid, pre-COVID body, I will put all of my energy and effort into attaining or maintaining that. If I gain 10 pounds or have an accident that maims me or takes away my ability to exercise, I would be devastated and probably not much fun to be around. I lash out at someone who threatens that image, or if I'm able to attain that perfect body, I am still disappointed, insecure, and work even harder. I'm completely focused on myself, and I am now a slave. Now, that example may seem obvious. Most of you would see that behavior playing out and call me out on it, or at least I hope you would. Abby, you have my permission. I've got you. I got you. (laughs) But what about when that idol becomes ministry or teaching the Bible? If I'm doing this, this teaching, as a way to earn favor in God's eyes, if my getting good attention or reviews on my ministry is a requirement for my happiness, it will master me. If someone complains about how boring I am, I would be devastated. (laughs) If works, works righteousness always produces idols, if I require anything other than Jesus to make me happy, then I am a slave to that thing, even if it's a good thing. In your homework this week, you looked at the parable of the prodigal son. I heard this story most of my life, but when I was in my early 20s, I heard Tim Keller preach a sermon on that parable, and he drew my attention to something I'd never seen before. At the end of the story, when the father prepares the feast for the homecoming of his lost son, where do we see the older brother? He's angry and bitter, so angry that he remains outside the feast. Both sons wanted control over their inheritance from their father. One wanted it by staying, one wanted it by taking it early and leaving. Neither son really wanted the father. At the end, the younger wayward son repents and goes into the father in the feast while the older do-right brother, who had stayed all those years, is left outside. It's so much harder to see the idols of religion because they are often so much less obvious. This is why Paul is in so much distress over the Galatians. They'd taken to observing special days and months and seasons and years. And this is a reference to the rituals and observance of festivals and ceremonies of the Old Testament. This type of idol worship would be so much harder for them to see than their former pagan idolatry. And what is the antidote? What is the antidote to this idol worship? To be known by God. Knowing God isn't necessarily what makes you a Christian. Paul makes this distinction with the word rather in verse 9, which means more importantly. We know God, but more importantly, he first knew us. To know in the Bible is more than just intellectual awareness. It was a personal, intimate relationship with someone. In 1 Corinthians 8.3, Paul says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Our knowing of God is as fickle as we are as humans, but his knowing of us was determined before you were born and is absolutely fixed and will never change. This is such good news because it means we don't have to make ourselves desirable to God. He already knows us in Christ. He is judged that we are justified and he sees us as he sees Christ, righteous. The more we realize that we are known by God, the less we feel the need to make much of ourselves through the constructing of idols, good or bad. Let's move on to verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you because as I am, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And through my con- and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. 
They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The original Greek had only one verb at the beginning of this first sentence and would have read, Become as I am, for I am as you are. What does this mean? After his previous concern over their turning back to the enslavement that Christ had redeemed them from, it makes sense that what Paul is referring to is the freedom he has experienced in the gospel of being known by God through Christ. Become like me in the freedom I enjoy in Christ. He was open about his own life and lived what he believed among the Galatians. But the only way he's able to say this without it sounding prideful to the Galatians is that he first made himself like them. This is what vulnerability looks like. He lived openly who he was without expecting them to alter their culture for his sake. He ate with them, played with them, lived with them. He knew them and their hopes and their struggles. He adapted himself to their ways and entered in their questions and fears, all without changing the gospel message. He was careful not to practice any Jewish cultural practices that might have hindered his evangelism in this Greek community. Note his confrontation uh, with Peter at Antioch for the same reason. He expounds on this in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means have save some. This leads Paul to make a couple contrasts in the following verses. First, he contrasts their reception of him in the past when he first came to them with their reception of him now as he writes the letter. And second, he contrasts his attitude toward them with the false teacher's attitude towards them. In verse 12 through 16, Paul reminds them of the circumstances of his first coming. He was sick. He was grossly sick to the point of possible disfigurement. And as a side note, there is a lesson for us here. Mainly how God uses suffering for his kingdom. It doesn't appear that Paul had intended to ever go to Galatia as part of his missionary journey. The truth is, we don't know what his ailment was. It isn't mentioned in Acts. There's some suspicion from comparing semantics to 2 Corinthians 12.7 that the thorn he references there is connected to the same disease. Scholars have guessed that it's possible he caught something like malaria from the mosquito-ridden coast of the Mediterranean and went to the more mountainous plateau of Galatia to recover. And the Galatians received him without complaint or repulsion. Most ancient Greeks considered disease and disability to be signs of an angry god or a deity. When Paul says they didn't despise him, he literally means they didn't spit on him, as pagans often did when they saw someone transfigured by a seemingly a demon. They received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself, and he used the opportunity to tell them the good news of Jesus. Hundreds of lives were changed because God allowed an illness to sicken Paul. God's blessing doesn't always come through removing, removing suffering. More often, he blesses us through suffering. Jesus suffered that in our suffering, we might become like him. Jesus did not suffer so that we might not suffer, but he suffered that we might become like him. In Paul's case, his suffering brought about the salvation of hundreds. Sometimes the good is in our own character that Christ might be formed in us. So the Galatians received Paul with such hospitality, but now he asks, what became of the blessing you felt? They were once so grateful to have had Paul and his apostolic message of Christ to the point that Paul says they would have gouged out their eyes for him. But not so now. 
when they liked his message, they treated him like an angel. But when they didn't like his message, he became their enemy. This is a warning to us as well. Astat says, an apostle's authority does not cease when he begins to teach unpopular truths. We cannot be selective in our reading of the apostolic doctrine of the New Testament. We don't get to pick and choose. The false teachers were bringing a message to tickle the ears and puff up, but not for the good of the Galatians, but so that the Galatians would flatter and make much of them. For a false teacher, teaching works righteousness. It makes sense that having the approval and flattery of their followers matters most of all. It's their assurance that they're good. Keller calls it salvation by ministry. One way to distinguish a false teacher is whether they are more concerned with gathering a following than with telling hard truths when they're necessary. Paul was not looking for fans. He wanted to see Christ formed in the Galatians. That is why he uses the child labor analogy here. No mother wants to keep her baby in the womb forever, feeding off of her life, but knows she must suffer for a season to get her child out and into the world to live on its own. The false teachers wanted followers. Paul was looking for partners in grace. He would love to be able to change his tone to be more gentle, but he knows that he must preach the gospel even when it offends. And because of his relationship with the Galatians, he can speak the truth with lots of love evident. The false teachers wanted to dominate, to build prestige and position. Paul longed for Christ to be formed and then prepared to sacrifice himself for their sake, that they could also say along with him, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This kind of ministry takes time and patience. It cannot be microwaved. But the Spirit will use God's word to make his children like his son, Jesus. Maybe you see that happening in your huddles now. Um, and now we're going to move into verse 21. Um, and Abby is going to share with us about Hagar and Sarah. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So now Paul transitions to talk directly to the Galatian Christians who have become convinced that they must add the Mosaic law to the gospel for their justification or those who want to be under the law. Yeah, thanks, Joy. Um, here, Paul is calling the Galatians to examine their newly adopted theology in light of what the scripture actually says. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? How could they say they valued the teaching in the Old Testament so much when they didn't even understand what it meant? I was thinking about how N.T. Wright says that reading Galatians is, quote, notoriously like listening to one side of a complicated phone conversation. Speaker and hearer assume a great deal that the listener has to fill in. And as we read here, Paul is pointing back to this story of two sons and two mothers from Genesis 21. And we can flip back in our Bibles and find the missing part of that complicated phone conversations. Um, Paul is reminding the Galatians and us that this is all, every word of scripture, part of God's big story. This is why in our Bible study, we study our passage. On the first day, we answer questions about what we learn about God, what we learn about ourselves in the passage. Day two, we look more at what the passage itself says. And day three, we dig deeper and we go to cross-references. Um, because God's word is one story. It is a meta-narrative that tells us God's entire story of 
creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And they all fit together. So we want to remember that the Galatian church was strongly influenced by the Judaizers, but they were not Israelites themselves. So Paul presumably had taught them the Old Testament himself. He is reminding them about Sarah and Hagar with a brief synopsis. And then he tells them in verse 24 that this is an allegory. It's worth noting that this is the only time this word is ever used in the Bible. Mm -hmm. An allegory is a deeper spiritual meaning behind a literal text. There certainly are other allegories in scripture besides this one, but we want to be very careful by Paul's example to always remain firmly committed to letting scripture interpret scripture. This is exactly, Paul shows us, what's happening here in Genesis. So the allegory compares Hagar, who was a slave, to living under the law, and Sarah, who was a free woman, to spiritual birth in Christ. And this comes to a people who have known God's free gift of salvation and quickly shrank into slavery of an old law. We're not covering any new theology. We're just looking at more evidence for the points that we've previously discussed in in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. This is a conclusion, a story that is painting this truth in vivid color. And honestly, for a minute, I wondered why it even needed to be here. But I think this is here as a special gift to many of the women in the Galatian church. Paul has already demonstrated a radical countercultural respect for women, which we saw in the end of chapter 3. Here, he's been using language about laboring and birthing. And then he references this story of two different women with tender experiences that resonate very deeply with many women back then, and unfortunately, some still today. We could spend a very long time parsing out a lot of the complicated and destructive aspects of the relationships between Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah in Genesis. So I want to acknowledge that and encourage you all to leave room for that tension. Holding tension and questions while pressing in to know the truth is very much an act of faith. To dive deep into all of that right now would pull us beyond what we're really studying in Galatians. So if some parts of the story leave you with more concerns, we do encourage you to keep pressing into scripture, bring your questions to the Lord, and hopefully we can cover it together at the full depth it deserves in the future. This is a good place to also note that Christy in her email this week to the huddles um, uh, sent out a link to a document. So if you have any questions that come up in any of the weeks, Um, that you would be interested to hear them addressed, um, then you can add your questions to that document. And some of them we might address in a podcast. Um, Some of them we may just read out to you um, or to your huddle one-on-one to talk about them. But we want you to bring your questions out. Um, And I mentioned to Abby earlier um, the passage from Genesis of Hagar and Sarah's story are honestly some of the hardest passages for me to sit with. They always have been. Um, And I... So agree with what you said, Abby. I think it's so true that tension is okay. Tension uh-huh. is good. Um, we want the, but we want that tension. Um, to hold that tension with faith is to expect to learn more about who God uh-huh. is for Him to my for my view of Him to become bigger as I seek to understand, not to try to find Him out. Uh-huh. That's that is what it to hold tension with faith, and so it's okay to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and God can take your questions. We can take them. God can take them. (laughs) You might want to take them in first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, the brief synopsis of this is that God promised childless Abraham descendants more numerous than stars in the sky and sands in the seashore. Um, And then as years passed in moments of despair and disbelief, he had a child named Ishmael with their servant Hagar, who was young and healthy and at her prime reproductive capacity. But he later had the child that God had actually promised, his son Isaac, with his wife Sarah, who was admittedly aged 
well beyond the bounds of potential motherhood and had been even before God's promise came. So Hagar in this story represents what Paul calls the earthly Jerusalem, the rules and traditions and ideas that people have about what it takes to be right with God. This is a direct reference reference here to the Judaizers, those false teachers who were pointing the Galatian Christians back to Jerusalem's heritage of the law. So for the Judaizers, clinging tightly to the law alone without accounting for God's promise was self-reliance and a salvation by work and accomplishment. We easily do the same thing. It's just more subversive because we're in the context of a secular age. We don't think of things in terms of like adhering to another religion or worshiping a false god, but more like being a good person or upholding ideas about morality and right and wrong that are espoused in culture as if they were equal or better than what we read in God's word. So, yeah, maybe God is at work in my salvation, but he certainly has a lot of good material to work with, this could whisper deceptively. Or it could be easy for us to make any number of assumptions, like, I go to church and believe the right things, but I also fit into these cultural ideals about politics or other personalities, about the way I interact with others, or even some assurance of how self-aware you are because you know your Enneagram number and are trying to move towards health, or really anything that we think shows we're doing really well as a human being, no matter how good it could be on its own. But when we find a sense of superiority about these things, that's how we've spiritually adopted an attitude of works Mm -hmm. and submit to a law of our own choosing. And looking at this from our human perspective, it is what makes sense to us. Just like it makes sense that a young, healthy woman like Hagar would offer the best chance to have a baby. Sarah represents what Paul calls the free Jerusalem above, and as the barren bride of promise, she is a picture of the victorious universal body of Christ, which is also called his bride. In Christ, we are her children. Paul proclaims here that the only way spiritual fruit and new life comes is from barrenness, when we are beyond the bounds of what we could do and cannot possibly receive worldly help. As someone who dreamed of a large family and wrongly presumed it would be something I could accomplish— this picture strongly resonates with me. Mm. But I think this picture of barrenness and fertility was probably especially poignant for the original readers who didn't have genetic testing and hormonal support and medical interventions like I was able to utilize to sustain a few of my pregnancies and bring my two children into the world. If I only had the medical care available to families in the Galatian church in Paul's day, I would remain a barren woman. And the thing about barrenness in my brief experience with some flavor of that is that it's an overwhelming and near obsessive awareness of your own lack because it doesn't take much failure along the road to hopefully having a child when suddenly everyone else you have ever seen or known has a baby, probably twins, (laughs) and you do not. And it's coupled with a profound sense of how helpless and powerless you really are. It's really easy in the midst of that to jump on all sorts of bandwagons, like I need to follow this diet or take these supplements, I need to change my exercise plan, I need to use the right essential oils, I need to find this kind of doctor. And for as much good as some of that can bring, it often carries a sense of assurance. You have to do something. You can't just wait there. Mm. It brings a sense of hope to be able to work at something on your end. And I bet Sarah had done whatever seemed normal to boost fertility in their culture over the course of her younger years. Mm. But when you or Sarah, have done all that and you still fail over and over again, you know in the most painful and deep way possible that you have no power to make this happen. The story of these women and their journeys to birth is an allegory for us and for our spiritual birth as a new creation. Paul reminds them they did not birth themselves and they can't add anything to the work of the one who did. Paul sticks with this discussion of barrenness in the Old Testament going from Genesis to the prophets who still tell us 
the same big story. He starts verse 27 quoting Isaiah. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. This discussion of the barren woman rejoicing is the story of the church, of our life in Christ. Our salvation, according to the promise, is not of our own doing. Mm. Every Christian, man or woman, is really brought to life in the womb of a barren woman. In the spiritual sense, none of us are the young, healthy, fertile woman who becomes pregnant, or as I've learned it's often called in the medical community, achieved pregnancy. We are the old barren woman who is long past the days of fertility and never had a baby during those days anyway, despite all the herbs and prayers and continued trying despite month after heartbreaking month of emptiness. Mm -hmm. We bring absolutely nothing to God as the seed for our rebirth, except as Jonathan Edward puts it, the sin that makes it necessary. Mm John Piper also reminds us that our real life is not, like Ishmael's, simply owing to the work of man. Our real life in Christ is owing to the work of God in us, fulfilling his promise to make for himself a people in Genesis and to put his spirit within them in Ezekiel and to write his law on their hearts in Jeremiah. Hmm. Those are the promises by which we are born into new life in Christ. Verse 29 goes on, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The law always persecutes the promise. The notion that you don't need to earn God's favor or that you can be a good person and that's enough is always a threat to anything or anyone that thinks they're capable of that. And we will discuss a little bit more at length, I think, this discussion of persecution in chapter 6. Mm. Um, but do hear right now that as Christians, when we are born of God, when we love him more and more, our love for him shapes us and changes us. It transforms us and it replaces our craving for the respect or esteem of the culture at large or individuals in particular with a desire for the Lord, with a desire to obey him and live for his approval instead of someone else's, even when it comes at great social, vocational, relational, or even physical cost. And note how he affirms that persecution from others is real and it happens, but he reminds us of what has been decreed. Verse 30 says, cast out the slave woman and her son. And that's why it's good news that we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You may experience persecution or loss. There may be a worldly cost to being a new creation and being in Christ, but we are never cast out. We are brought in. You are accepted. You are born of the spirit, not a futile effort. You have the kiss of the Father, like we heard about last week. Mm. I keep thinking about the song, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken, which you should all go listen to when it says, Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. What a promise. What an identity. And what comfort that children of the covenant may be persecuted but are not cast out. Mm. And I love how the book of Hebrews talks about the same concept. Hebrews 7.19 says, The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Because we have that better hope, we are drawn near to God. Because we are born of the free woman, the one who is barren, we are the cherished, long-desired, beloved children of God's perfect promise, his covenant. This is a precious, unshakable gift. 
It is a costly and perishable inheritance, and it is the foundation by which we can, as we will continue to read next week, learn to live in his freedom. Mm. Amen. Father, what a beautiful, beautiful gift that you've given to us. Help us not to squander our inheritance to continue making mud pies in the slums when you have prepared for us a vacation by the sea. Um, Father, thank you for your word, for how it shows us, it mirrors back to us who we are and what we are. I pray it would be formed in us this week, um, informed in us as we commune with each other around your word. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. The word made flesh. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.